This is a Scream Queen production. These violent delights have violent ends. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is Violent Ends. Welcome to episode number 100. A hundred episodes. That is so wild to me. To celebrate this momentous occasion, I hosted a live show at the Robin Theater on April 2nd, and it was just a really, really special time. I wish that you all could have been there, but you know, there's there's only so many seats inside a theater. So we recorded it for those of you that couldn't make it in person. Enjoy. Hi. Hi. Hello. How's everybody doing? Thank you so much for coming today to celebrate 100 episodes of Violent Ends. I'm really excited. I'm on the wrong microphone. I'll be at the right one in just a second. I haven't done this in a really long time. Who came to the last live show we did here at The Robin? Some of you? That was February of 2020. Um, A lot's changed. A lot's changed since then. So I'm a little rusty, so bear with me. Um, Something feels a little off. Something feel a little off to you guys? Couldn't do it without her. Hi. This feels weird. <laughs> it's been so long. Hi, friend. Hi. Long time no talk. Well, that's not true. I know. We talk all the time. In the so, microphone. Yes. When people are like, what happened to Danny? I'm like, I don't know what happened to Danny. I just talked to her like yesterday. Okay? <laughs> I forget that. We still talk all the time. I forget that to you guys. She's gone now. So yeah. Cheer, here she is. She's Hi. okay. <laughs> so we've got a lot planned for you guys today. She is not our only special guest joining us. So we're going to talk about some true crime and talk about just kind of the podcast and kind of where things have been and where things have gone. And then we're going to talk about some some crime. Yeah. So... 100 episodes. We did 45 of those together in the first year, and it's taken me three more years to do the other half of those. Yeah. So it just kind of shows like how quick out the gate. fucking work is what it is. (laughs) It is. It is. It's Mm -hmm. hard work. Um, I feel like I'm constantly like Late to turn an assignment in, basically. Is Nobody cares. Like. Nobody cares. As long as you get it out there. Yeah. I know every yeah. week I'm like, when is it coming? What is she doing? <laughs> yeah. So, a couple, couple questions we got. Um, what has been, like, the craziest thing to you about all of this since we started, what, 2019 and thought only our moms were going to listen? Right. The craziest thing is when people say, are you that Danny from the podcast? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. Because I'm just so like in my bubble world that I forget. And that was 
so long ago, but that stamp is mm-hmm. still there for everybody to just listen to all the time. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's new to people, and they don't even know that, like, I left. And I know. So I that know. gets a little like, oh, yeah, I, I did do that years ago. So <laughs> that is me. And we've had just just so many adventures just in that first year. I mean, we uh, hit it hard coming since, out the gate. And since. We've done we some silly to. things since. Yes. So, mm-hmm. What has been your favorite? <laughs> um, the most memorable but, like, most fucked up. <laughs> Was the um, the cult place we went oh, to? Oh, when we we almost got kidnapped by a cult. Did I ever tell you guys about that? I was so scared just in that town. I think I still have your fingernail marks in my uh-huh. eye. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was not comfortable. Jen was like graceful, handled it like a champ, talking to the lady, the and I was like, "What have I gotten myself into?" Or the place we went where the hog, the hog. Yeah. So you guys remember the House of David episode? Um, we And we went. We went to the House of David. And um, I guess, you know, we're so used to visiting like historical sites that I did not think of it as still an active, active uh, cult. And it is. Um, so yeah, we, we had a real weird time. Um, got we got to ride a little choo-choo train, A little though. choo-choo train, yeah, through Eden mm-hmm. Springs Park. And then so we got weird. indoctrinated a little bit. Um, and then they sent us into this super weird gift shop at the end that um, the one living <laughs> survivor of the House of David was on the other side, and he never came over, but we could hear him, like, shuffling along. Mm-hmm. And everywhere we went, he went. Like, we could hear him right on the other side of the wall. Honestly, I've never felt so judged than when I was there. Like, um, they knew we were not there to join their cult, yeah. and I think that they were, like, rejecting us. Yeah, that was weird. It was really weird. And then when we went down, where was that, Marshall? Marshall. We went down and visited someone, and theory is the so victim we do... was fed to the hogs. And then this guy said, there's a hog here. Isn't it? A 900-pound hog. It was the biggest hog with we these went... big teeth. We went down to do, um, to talk to the people that ran. They don't anymore. They've sold it. But the um, haunted tours they do down in Marshall. Right. And um, we met them. They have, you know, carriage rides. So they had horses and stables and they had a big barn. And that's where he wanted to meet us was in this big, dark barn. So it was just the two of us, this man, a 900-pound hog. And bats. And, and bats. bats were yes. flying over us. Rabid bats, because they were all being treated for rabies, he told us, once uh-huh. we were see- sitting across from him. Um, that was scary. As we were sitting there, he informed us that his best friend um, is the son of the man that we very strongly accused of doing away with Mary Lands on the podcast. Chris Pratt, we called him some some... Would you call him Douche Lord instead of Star Lord? The Douche Lord, yeah. (laughs) He's like, yeah, that's my best friend's dad. And we're just sitting in this dark little barn with him and his hog, which that's one of the prevailing theories is that that's what they did with Mary's That might have been one of the moments where I was like, maybe this isn't for me. (laughs) (laughs) It was fine. We're here. We're here. We made it through that one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We did. So we were talking a little bit about what we wanted to talk about today, because I always have these ideas, and then I don't know what I'm going to do with them. So like, 100 episodes, let's do a live show. Please come do it with me. Okay, what are we going to do? 
and we were talking about it like a week ago, two weeks ago maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what did you say to do one that was like a hundred years old? And I go, yeah, we could do that. Or we could try to find one that um, somebody that like killed a hundred people because it's a hundred episodes. And then we kind of found our connection. It's connected to something we'll talk about later. Um, but there is a serial killer whose big claim to fame was that he had killed a hundred people or six hundred, somewhere in or three, somewhere somewhere in or there, or just eleven. Yeah. And um, he, his first murder was here in Michigan. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about him today. Before we get too far into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor. Care of is a subscription service that ships high quality personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. Their mission is to make it easy to take care of you, and they recognize that everyday wellness looks different for everyone. So all you have to do is take a short, in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals for a personalized, doctor-backed recommendation, taking the guesswork out of what supplements are best suited for you. The quiz is super quick and easy. If I was able to figure it out, anybody can figure it out. And I've definitely noticed a difference in my overall health since I began taking supplements recommended specifically for me, like American Ginseng, also referred to as the study buddy. Doing a true crime podcast essentially means I'm writing at least two in-depth book reports every month. So I do a lot of studying and a lot of researching, and American Ginseng helps with focus, mental clarity, working memory, and energy goals. It may even help reduce stress-related fatigue. For 50% off your first Care of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code VIOLENTENDS50. Again, that is TakeCareOf.com, promo code VIOLENTENDS5050 for 50% off your first order. And be sure to tell them I sent you. You guys familiar with Henry Lee Lucas? He did. What was the Netflix? The Confession Killer Mm -hmm. on Netflix. Anybody watch that? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, little known fact, Henry Lee Lucas's first murder happened here in Michigan. Can we talk about him, like, kind of his his origins? I had to make notes because my memory is crap, but I know Mine you. is so crap, but I, like, studied him. She did. Because I haven't done this in so long, so I was like, <laughs> I better figure this out again. <laughs> and I'm not used to doing it in, like, a conversational way anymore, so I write, like, a whole script, and I started to do that, and I was like, what, are you going to take, like, 20 pages up on stage with you? No. <laughs> so, Henry Lee Lucas was born... Somewhere. I lost. There's my first page. Virginia. There we go. Blacksburg, Blacksburg Virginia. Virginia. August 23rd, 1936. Mm-hmm. What do you know about his home life, Danny? His mom was, oh, I was going to say a bad word. His mom was a whore, basically. Um, she Professionally. Was a, she was a sex worker. I think that's what they call it, but right? No, no. But not legit. No. Like like the backwoods sex worker. <laughs> like she was a whore. Her. That brought her, so the family lived in a log cabin with dirt floors, nine kids. Henry Lee was the youngest of the nine kids. She was married. Um, did you did you happen to come across what they called her husband around town in Blacksburg? Oh, I do, but I, I, what is it? I don't remember. They called him 
No legs, Lucas, because right. he didn't have legs. And you know what I instantly thought of when I heard the no legs? Mm-hmm. Um, what was that Natalie Portman movie, Where the Heart Is? Oh, mm-hmm. And her, like, baby yeah. daddy got That's exactly how he his lost legs. his legs, too, was in a railroad accident. So mm-hmm. um, after that happened, he took to making moonshine, and Viola, his wife, took to um, sex work in their log cabin in front of the kids. Um, and she would bring she w- her Johns into the house. And she and- would make Henry participate with the workers. In his earliest... Or with the Johns? Yeah, the Johns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Her customer, her customer base. Both of the parents were raging alcoholics. Viola was super, super abusive to all the kids, but especially Henry, because he was very much not wanted. Um, she used to dress him up like a little girl and send him to school that way. The school had to, the school system had to take a court order out against her to get her to stop dressing him up like a little girl in dresses and curling his hair for school. But she did that so she could sell him out to the clientele. Yeah. Yep. He yep. got in trouble one time because the teacher gave him a teddy bear, and his mom beat the shit out of him because he got a teddy bear from the teacher. Mm-hmm. Like what a not to like shed any sympathy light for him because he's a dirtbag, but... But, I mean, I don't know if I've ever read about someone having a rougher start than his, to be honest. Um, It was horrendous. If he got a pet, she would kill it. Some One of his uncles gave him a pet mule. She killed it right in front of him. If he found, like, a cute little kitten outside, anything that he loved, she would take from him in just horrific ways. Some highlights... From Henry's childhood that I wrote down. You may have found more than me, but when he was three, eight years old, he spent three days in a coma because his mom beat him in the head with a um, board. That was from the teddy bear. Oh, that was the teddy bear? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. When he was 11 years old, he lost his eye because he got in a fight with one of his brothers and his brother stabbed him in the eyeball. But his mom let it get infected and never treated it, which is why he lost the eye. And had a glass eye at 11, which it also said that right around the age of 11, right around that when that happened is when his dad introduced him to alcohol. So he was a raging alcoholic by the time he was 11. With a glass eye. With a glass eye. That he used to pop out and play with in front of people. Mm. <laughs> so bug. Um, when he was 13, he lost his dad, which was uh, definitely not a good role model, but I think the one shield he had, because Viola really took out her anger on no legs, um, that's so <laughs> she took out her anger on him primarily, and then I hope everybody here has their legs, and we're not yeah. like offending anyone. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Um, so there, his dad froze to death. He got drunk and passed out drunk outside and died. And in some articles, it'll say it was an accident. In some articles, it'll say it was intentional because he just could not handle that lifestyle anymore, understandably. Henry, you know, abused by his mom, pimped out by his mom. His dad introduced him to alcohol. His mom introduced him to sex work. His uncle Bernie, who was his mom's, like, primary customer, introduced him to bestiality. At the age of 11 or 12. This is why I've never done this one on the show. It's so bad. So bad. Um, So he had a very rough life. And by the time he was in his mid-teens, he was going to juvie and getting picked up for burglary, breaking and entering. In 1955, 
He got sentenced to four years in prison for multiple counts of burglary. I still can't talk. Mm -hmm. I still can't. (laughs) A hundred episodes and I still can't talk. Uh, And he got out when he was 19. So 1959, he's had this horrible upbringing. He's almost 20. Like, let's, let's start over. Where do we go to start over? Michigan. Mm-hmm. He came here to come see. Yep. Right? Down yep. in the Detroitish area. Kind of like where your palms itch when you get nervous, like Close I am to right Ann now. Arbor. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Kind of there. <laughs> to live with his sister Opal. And then mm-hmm. uh, and, and get away from his mom. Like, get away from his mom. How'd that go for him? Not good. No? Because she came running here begging him to come. Well, she her health was, I mean, she probably had every STD under the sun, so she was probably dying, but um, she came back here to beg him to come back to Virginia with her. And, and take care of her in her later life, yeah. even though she didn't take yeah. care of him as a child. <laughs> and he said no. She hit him with a broomstick. That'll convince him, right? Right. (laughs) Well, since you hit me with the broomstick, you witch. And then he went to hit her back, but had a, they they keep calling it a knife pen. A knife pen. A pen knife. Pen knife. Uh, Is that what you call like a Swiss Army knife? I don't know. I don't think so. Mm. I'm picturing like a real skinny little knife. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, he whacked her. Sliced her neck with the penknife and killed her. Except it wasn't that that killed her. She had a heart attack. Oh, I didn't know that mm-hmm. part. Well, he beat the shit out of her, too. Yeah, so she had a heart attack. Like, her daughter, if this was January 11th, 1960, so he would have been 23, almost 20, 22, almost 23. He attacked her, stabbed her, slit her throat, but she did not die. She was still alive when her daughter got home later that day, but she died of a heart attack from all of the... Now, like, it's hard to be sad for Viola, honestly. I didn't have a lot of sympathy for her because she really messed her kids up. And so Henry was... He fled. They found him in Ohio. They brought him back. They charged him with second-degree murder. His lawyer was pushing for manslaughter because he maintained that he didn't realize he was holding a knife. Mm -hmm. And he thought he was just hitting her. (laughs) So he was sentenced to 20 to 40 years. Guess where they sent him? Louder. Ionia. Of course they did. (laughs) Of course they did. Mm -hmm. So he went to Ionia, spent some time there, and then after about 10 years... Um, he was released due to overcrowding. When he Those was, are the people you want to let go. Yeah. Right? He was 34. It was 1970. And I guess they probably didn't know a lot about how messed up he was. You know, the circumstances surrounding that one single incident, not knowing everything we know about him now, like, okay. Hindsight, right? Yeah. Kind of how I feel about Gypsy Rose getting out here pretty soon. Like, let her out. I, I don't cry tears for her mom. Right. Cry tears Same. for Viola. No. Yeah, I mean, Henry. Henry. So it's 1970. He's 34. They release him. He's still in Michigan. He immediately gets arrested again for trying to kidnap three school children. Um, So they send him back to jail for five more years. And he made a pen pal. Did you read a lot about his pen pal? I did not. 
Okay, I have a feeling you have all the details. It was his cousin's widow. Her name was Betty. She had two young daughters. So, of course, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. you've got two young daughters. Your husband's dead. Logical thing is to become pen pals with his child molester cousin, right? So when he got out in 1975, they got married. They split two years later after her daughters accused him of molesting them. I mean, he's a real Prince Charming. Yeah, yeah. And I just, like, the fact that Henry Lee Lucas was able to find a wife and multiple girlfriends is so distressing because he's so gross looking. Have you guys seen him? He's so gross looking. It's his teeth. And his face. And his glass eye. (laughs) Whole thing, the whole thing. But you know what? The younger pictures of him, he didn't look too bad. I mean, I wouldn't have given him a hickey, but he did not look like the ugliest person on the planet. Yeah, that's true. So on The Confession Killer, like the beginning credits, it runs a bunch of pictures of him from childhood up through his arrest. And they strategically cover the bad half of his face with their, like, captions. And he doesn't look that bad until they... It's like the Phantom, right? Phantom well, of the Opera. When he opens his mouth. Like yeah. the later pictures, it's like wooden teeth. Yeah. It's so fucking gross. Really gross. So after he got out in like 1977-ish, 76, 77, I think he got sentenced to multiple years, but he got out in 76. Um, He traveled the country. And what he did during that time, we don't really know. He told some stories later on. Um, But he wound up in 1976 in Florida. And uh, that is where he met a man by the name of Otis Toole. Familiar with Otis? His claim to fame is he is believed to be, uh, who killed Adam Walsh. So even John Walsh believes that this is who killed his son. He confessed to it. So, I mean, it's like they closed the book on it, but it's still kind of lots of questions there. So Otis also had just a horrible upbringing. He was sexually abused as a child, horribly abused. He was also a criminal sexual psychopath. I'm sure he would have spent time in Ionia if he ever made his way to Michigan. And he was a serial arsonist and a murderer by the time he was 14. So he got started really young. So you take Henry Lee Lucas, Otis Toole, and Florida. <laughs> That's a recipe for disaster. It really, truly, truly was. Mm-hmm. Do you know a lot about his time living with the tools? No. No? So he moved in. You know in, the good stuff. He moved in. You know, that's the, I like hone in on like the... You know? The disgusting details? No. I can't handle those. I skip right over those. I've got the disgusting details. You know those. (laughs) No. You'll have to jump in with those, Mm because I was like, oh, no, let me skip four paragraphs Mm -hmm. right now. (laughs) So he moved in with Otis Toole's family, his parents, his niece and nephew, who were very young, his niece, um, Frida, who went by Becky, because that's... That makes sense. Um, She was 10. When he moved in with the family, him and Otis became involved in a romantic relationship, but his real goal was to groom Becky, who again was 10, and he was in his 40s. And he did it. In 1981, Becky's mom died, and she was put into a children's home, and he got her out of there and took off with her, and they ran the country for a little bit with Otis, and then they ditched Otis. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you know a lot more than I do about his time with Addis, because like I said, I skipped over a lot of that. So their claim when they 
killed people was that they ate them. I know you love that part. Um, however, it's only Otis that ate them because Henry was asked, why didn't you barbecue with him? And he said, I don't like barbecue sauce. It wasn't the human flesh. It was the barbecue sauce. Right. I mean, bleh. So some articles I read said they claimed to have committed mm-hmm. 108 murders together, together plus mm-hmm. all the ones they did separately. Mm-hmm. So uh, January of 1982 is when uh, Henry and Becky, who was 15 at this point, he's 46, she's 15, they hit the road together. They traveled the country for like the next seven months. They wound up in Texas. They worked for a woman named, what was her name? Kate Kate Rich. Rich. Yep. Known as Granny. To the locals. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot about that? Uh, A little bit. Um, So she lived on the Brooks farm. And they they stayed in like a spare room that the farmhand had. And they would, the owner of the farm said that Henry was like the hardest worker he'd ever had on the farm and was reliable, even called him a good looking kid. So clearly he was delusional too. (laughs) Um, But they would come and go, like they would stay there, but then they'd leave for two weeks and then they'd come back and work. And... They ended up being the caretaker for Katie Rich, and Becky and him left again for a few weeks. Well, they got fired. Oh, did they get fired? Yep, they were writing checks to themselves off of her bank account, and her kids caught them. So he's kind of been living unchecked. You know, if he interacts with people, it's people like Otis Tool's family. But Katie Rich actually had children Okay. That were like, wait a minute, you're stealing from our mom, you're like, out of here. Why weren't they the caretakers? I don't know, maybe they were busy. The times. Busy. They were yeah. busy. Yeah. Have this molester come and take care of her. Mm. Um, no, he was a good looking guy. <laughs> <laughs> so they leave um, and they move into some, sounds, it sounded a little culty. It was like a church workhouse, mm-hmm. something sounded a little bit culty. And it was there that Becky decided that this was not the life for her. And she started to get homesick and she wanted to go home and they started to fight about it. So the natural progression to that was for Henry Lee Lucas to drive her out to a field and stab her to death and cut her body up into little pieces and bury it all over. Makes sense. Yeah, you can see Logic. how we got from A to B on that one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Becky's gone, but nobody's really looking for her. You know, her family is dead. Her living next of kin is Otis Tool, who's got other problems. And so no one's really looking for Becky. But then a few weeks later, Kate Rich disappears. I didn't ever, I couldn't find anything that made sense as to why that happened. He like, just took her. I, some things I read said that he asked her to help him look for Becky. And then some of the things oh, I read. I read one on that too. Yeah. And then some things said that he, that she must have found out what happened mm-hmm. to he Becky. clearly just lured her into the car. But he took her out to a different field and stabbed her to death and stuffed her in a drainage pipe. But again, Kate Rich had family and people looking for her, unlike Becky. So... 
they contacted the police and they were like, we think it was this creepy guy that we let live with her so that we didn't have to. And the police had their sights set on Henry, but they couldn't, they couldn't prove it. And then through their investigation, they found out that Becky was missing and Becky, you know, he was the common link. These were the two people he spent most of his time with. They're both gone now. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were really after him. They were finally able to, you know, just like all of the gangsters and stuff get brought down for like tax evasion when not killing 500 people, but tax evasion. This was kind of the same thing. He got arrested on a weapons charge, even though what they really wanted him for was murder. Do you know who had the weapon? No. One of her kids. Oh. One of Kate's kids. One of Kate's kids. He asked the kid to hold the daughter Mm -hmm. to hold on to the weapon for him. And she said, Well, I've got this gun that he gave me. And they said, Well, that's all we need. We're going to get him. Yeah. He's he's not allowed to have those. And you kill your mom, you don't have to stay in jail, but you can't have a gun. (laughs) So that's gun control. Yeah. So June 11th, <laughs> 1983, they arrested him. Um, and that is when he came upon the next very, very evil man in his life, uh, Sheriff Jim Boutwell. He, who has seen the confession killer? So like you've seen this guy, right? The Sheriff Boutwell. Like the first time his face pops up on the screen, you're like, he is no, no good. He is up to no Good. Mm-hmm. So he gets him in custody. Um, they charge him with first-degree murder. I mean, he's confessed. He takes him to the bodies. Well, Becky's in parts, and at this point, he had gone back to the drainage ditch, gotten Kate's body, and burned her in, a, in an oven. So he leads them to the bodies, and um, done deal, right? He's got an arraignment for Kate Rich's murder, and, you know, the judge can tell he's not the smartest guy. Well, his IQ was 85? Yeah, something like that. So he, so says, he was not smart. No. So he says, you know, sir, do you understand that you are being accused of murder? And he's like, yeah, I get it, I get it. But what about those other hundred women I killed? Why would you even say that? See, I think he was like a closet genius. No. <laughs> No. I do. I do. No I think way. he pretended to be an idiot. Mm-mm, I think he was just that stupid. I mean, mm, he was... Okay. But may, maybe. I think he was so good at manipulating the mm. whole process, though. See, and like, that's how Wikipedia plays it. We all know that Wikipedia is the most reliable source out there. <laughs> they play it as like he manipulated, manipulated the police. I kind of... Think they did him? Yes. That could be. Yes. So basically now they're taking him, like we know that he's killed his mom and we know that he killed Becky and we know that he killed Granny Rich, but now who are these hundred women and what do we do with him now? He's sitting in our jail. Uh, So they form a task force to identify these hundred women and get his confessions. And he's like, well, I did it all over the country. It wasn't just here in Texas. You know, I've been everywhere. So law enforcement officials from all over the country start coming to question him. And uh, Sheriff Boutwell promised him for every case he was able to help someone close, he would get a milkshake. And he said, just make it strawberry. Mm Mm-hmm. And now I don't like strawberry milkshakes Mm-mm. anymore. Nope. Those were my favorite. <laughs> and so it went from 100 to 200 to 300 to 600, mm-hmm. over 600 murders that he confessed to. 
Meanwhile, he's walking around the jail with no handcuffs on, free access to unlimited cigarettes and coffee and snacks, and they took him to cafes. People described it, they brought in a nun to kind of counsel him, and they described it as almost a family dynamic. He Mm -hmm. treated the sheriff and this nun like they were his parents. Didn't the sheriff at one point say that they were like buds? Yeah, they were like family. There was a um, certificate. They made up a certificate. I didn't write down what it was called. I should have. And it was on the sheriff's wall in his office that said that he had graduated from the Henry Lee Lucas School of Psychology. So I would not personally hang a certificate given to me by a serial killer in my office if I was a sheriff. Right. Or anyone, but especially a sheriff, but he did. So just a really, really weird dynamic. But the more that he's confessing, the more attention the story is starting to get. Mm -hmm. And people with brains were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. That's not even possible. He couldn't have been here, here, and here. There's literally no way he could have done this murder on this day and then this one on this day. And so there was my favorite, favorite character. I guess he's not a character. He's a real person. My favorite (laughs) human featured in um, Confessions of a Killer or the Confession Killer was Hugh Ainsworth, who was an investigative journalist. Mm -hmm. This poor guy went from face-to-face interviews up close every day with Ted Bundy to Henry Lee Lucas. And when he's talking about him, you can just see the disgust because, like, Bundy was polished, right? And he's like, this guy had four teeth. He smelled so bad I had to hold my breath while I was talking to him. His eye was leaky. Like, he was used to, like, that, like, shiny serial killer, not, not this. So he was pre- he's pretty funny in the documentary. But he did an expose in a newspaper saying, like, they're full of shit. I sat in with them on all of these things, and they are absolutely full of it. There was one scene. Do you remember when the Japanese filmmakers were there? Yes. Do you remember what he said to them? I don't remember, but I remember watching it going. (laughs) He, this was my huge letters, because don't forget to mention this. This is the type of stuff that the Texas Rangers and Sheriff Jim Boutwell were just like accepting from him and been like, solved it, got it, we're all good. He was talking to the filmmakers and they were like, how did you do this? How did you, you know, this is so many people and all over the country and like you're a celebrity in Japan, which gross. They were like fangirling over him. It was Mm -hmm. gross. He's like, I got some in your country too. And they were like, in in Japan? And he's like, yeah, yeah. Right, was that not an aha moment? Yeah, no. How'd you get to Japan? I drove. I drove. That's right. I drove there. And Sheriff Boutwell was like, solved another one, good to go. Like, a fucking idiot. Because this is all, they're not retelling this. They are showing it. This was being recorded. They are showing Mm -hmm. this being recorded. And just that look on the sheriff's face, he was so smug and just evil, evil. He was so proud. Evil. Evil. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the more people got like, wind of what was going on, they were like, no, 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 no. So Hugh Ainsworth, the investigative journalist, he had all of these recordings, and he saved a couple of them. He managed to recover a couple where, like, the sheriff would walk out of the room, and he'd be like, you know, I really didn't do that, right? Like, they they gave me the file. I didn't do that. On record, saying that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those recordings, except a couple, got disappeared in a burglary. And without him even reporting it to the police, because he knew that that was who took it, without him even reporting the robbery to anyone, mm-hmm. Sheriff Botwell came up to him one day and slapped him on the shoulder and goes, sorry to hear about your burglary. He didn't tell anybody about the burglary. So, mm-hmm. so then as this goes on, and now there's all of this scrutiny, a very young, what was he, the district attorney, mm-hmm. Vic Fazell. Mm-hmm. I loved him. I loved Vic. Vic Fazell was the district attorney in Waco. And so a few of his cases were ones that Henry had confessed to. And he's like, yeah, this all sounds crazy. This sounds like a bunch of nonsense. I'm going to investigate my cases again a little harder and look at them a little closer. And he found evidence that there was no chance that Henry had committed any of the murders in Waco. Um, So he starts to be critical of the Texas Rangers. And all of a sudden, his dog has been poisoned. He's getting prank calls. He's getting death threats. And then he gets arrested in Mm 86-ish. Yeah. 86, gets arrested for racketeering and bribery. <laughs> um, turns out it was the FBI, the Texas Rangers, and a local news station in cahoots to bring him down because they didn't want him undoing these hundreds of murders that they had solved. Mm-hmm. He actually got off. He was acquitted on the chart, or he was found not guilty, and then he sued. He couldn't sue the district attorney, and he couldn't sue the FBI. You can't sue the FBI. Um, but he sued the news station, and he won like $58 million because it was proved that they had this big conspiracy against him and were out to get him. That was a little crazy. Mm-hmm. So basically, they did this horrible thing, and then they went after the investigative journalist and robbed him, and they tried to ruin the life of this prosecuting attorney for kind of realizing that everything was not as they were, as they were saying. Mm-hmm. Am I missing any parts no, here? Because I know you watched You're, more than me. No, I know you got it. I don't know. You do. You tell me that. So he gets charged with a ton of these murders all over the country, and um, you know he's already doing life for the two murders that they know that he committed for killing Kate and Becky. So no big deal to keep getting life sentences piled on top of that until he gets arrested, or he confesses to, the murder of someone that, until 2019, they just referred to as Orange Socks. Um, It was a young woman. They found her body on the side of the highway in Texas, and all she was wearing was Orange Socks. They referred to her as that forever until they were able to, through ancestral DNA, which is, like, so magical, right? Mm -hmm. Just in 2019, they found her identity. Her name was uh, Deborah Jackson, and she was 23 years old. So for that one, he got a death sentence. And at that point, he's like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. That, that wasn't part of the plan. That wasn't part of the deal. So after Vic Fazell gets arrested and goes through a trial and is found not guilty, he becomes Henry Lee Lucas's attorney to try to get him off, if not for most of these murders, um, definitely for Orange Socks because that's the one he's got a death penalty for. And they were successful. They didn't, they didn't reverse the verdict, but um, George W. Bush, who was president at the time, acquitted him in 1998. Not acquitted. Converted his sentence. I ne- converted his sentence in 1998 um, to life in prison, which, again, what's another life sentence? 
That was George W. That w. That's literally D-U-B-Y-A, George W. <laughs> um, Sad so. we're on the same page. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, um, So now he's just serving multiple life sentences again, and Vic Fuzel, you know, he's of course got an axe to grind with the Texas Rangers and the FBI. They tried to ruin his life. So he's trying to get a lot of these thrown out. And so it was kind of interesting because exactly what happened in the beginning, right? Like, I killed these, few, these two people. Oh, you want me to say I killed more people and get more attention? Okay, well, I didn't just kill two people. I killed 600 people. So then he did the exact reverse. No, yeah, you're right. I didn't kill 600. I mean, they were finding, like, they found one of them in her car, one that he confessed to, like, chopping up and burying. They found her years later in her car in, the, in a lake because she had had a seizure and died while she was driving. Like, mm-hmm. physically impossible. They found some of them alive. So just physically impossible for him to have done all of these. So he's like, well, yeah. No, yeah, I didn't kill 600 people. Actually, I didn't kill anybody except my mom. But they're like, but you, you took us to, to Becky's body parts, sir. Do you think he had 600 milkshakes? Yes, I do. I would like because he died of heart failure. One. He died of heart failure. Makes sense. So okay. yes, I do think so. Do you remember what happened when he claimed that he didn't kill Becky? Did you see that? No. Okay. Triggered my memory. Okay. So he's like, no, they're, they're not dead. In fact, Becky's alive. And so then they find Becky, right? And she's got her whole story down. And she's like, and Vic Fizzell's like, I got it. I got them. Becky's alive. And it's this huge thing in the news. And they do interviews with her. And she's on 2020. And yeah, it wasn't Becky. It was some woman that was infatuated with Henry Lee Lucas. It was them teeth. She had gotten... Maybe she was like a dental hygienist. She had communicated... <laughs> no, she was in love with him. She had been in communication with Gacy and Charles Manson. She, I don't think I wrote so it when weird. I transferred to my, to my note cards, but I wrote it in my note notes what she said because they interview her in The Confession Killer, and she says what attracted her to him was the number of people that he killed. Yeah. Is there a word for that? Like, Psychopath. Well, yeah, but like, like so Henry was a necrophiliac. Yes. Yes. See, I skipped over that. Yeah, mm-hmm. we forgot yeah, he that was. one. So, is there a, some? Is there a word for somebody who is attracted to killers? Probably. I mean, there is, right? Probably. What is it? <laughs> She's like, <laughs> I'm like, I know We've, somebody. This I'm is like, why we brought in experts. Hyperstephilia. Well, she had that. That's disgusting. So. Unlike the Texas Rangers who were, like, they would do anything to keep the lie going, Vic Fazell was like, fuck you. He dropped him. He went to the media and was like, yeah, he lied. Becky's dead. He, he, was, he went from, I'm getting attention for killing two people, so let me say I killed 600, to now I'm getting attention for them taking them all back, so let's take them all back. So um, Vic Fazell dropped him as his attorney, and uh, that was in 1999. And then in 2001, before much else could happen, Henry died from milkshake intoxication (laughs) at the age of 64. (laughs) So in the end, on his super reliable, and that's the thing, on the Wikipedia page, I want you to watch The Confession Killer if you haven't, and then Mm -hmm. go read 
even just the Wikipedia page, the difference between the two, because in the Confession Killer, it's absolutely Sheriff Boutwell and the Texas Rangers driving this train wreck. And then on Wikipedia, it's like they did not realize that by giving him these privileges, they were encouraging him to confess to things he didn't do. Like, you will never convince me that a Texas Ranger did not write that Wikipedia page. Right? Um, So, three confirmed murders. His mom, Becky Powell, and Granny Rich. Eight that they believe are likely. So, 11-ish, probably. Um, Not 600. No. There's probably some sprinkled in there. And so, there was another... Michigan tie, which is that one of the people that he was at one point in time a suspect in the case of was the murder of a woman named Mary Alice Ellicott. She was murdered in Saline, Michigan in 1981. And uh, her case is currently being studied by Michigan State University's School of Criminal Justice. So... As they are the experts on the case, we are going to bring them up to talk about Mary Alice Ellicott's case today. We've got Assistant Professor Karen Holt, Instructor Allison Rojek, and recent graduate of the program, Kristen Cyber. You can be careful. It would have been so much classier to come back. Oh, they're, they're doing it. <laughs> they left you hanging. I feel like, yeah. Now I have to wait for them, and it's awkward. There we go. (laughs) Hi, everyone. We are so excited to be here. Um, I was saying, I've said this like four times, but I feel like we finally made it being on Jen's podcast. (laughs) We're very excited. Um, I'm Karen Holt. I'm a faculty member in the School of Criminal Justice. Um, my my colleague, Allison Rojak, is also in the School of Criminal Justice. And then Kirsten is one of our students um, who just graduated last year. So I figured we'd give kind of a quick, um, just a quick, you know, brief introduction about like what it is that we do. Um, and then talk a little bit about Mary's case. And, and that's why we're here today. And we're so excited that we have this opportunity to talk to all of you about her case. Because it really is like the community members, um, you know, like we... We wish we had DNA in every case that would be like, yes, we get all this tested. Um, but when you look at the cold case clearance rate and then you look at the cases that are actually solved, it's those like it's people going out, talking to the community, talking to witnesses, people really keeping um, these victims kind of centered um, and not forgetting. And so the fact that we're here today is really exciting. I want to point out uh, Mike Slagle and Don Terry, you're going to stand up. Um, if it weren't for them, they're not going to stand up. Um, <laughs> But um, they're the two of the detectives who just refused to let this case was from 1981, um, and they just refused to let this case be relegated to a dusty to dusty boxes um, in the Saline Police Department. And it was because of their work uh, that any of us became involved in this in this case. So I'll let Ali kind of talk a little bit about what, what we do and how this started. Yeah, thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Um, and I don't know about anybody else, but I'm feeling really good about my parenting skills right now. After hearing that background, I'm like, I got this. Like, I'm, I'm not doing anything that bad. Yeah. So, like, my kids are totally going to be fine. Um, no, just a, just a little bit about kind of how we got started. Um, so, basically, there was a detective at Michigan State Police who was tasked by his supervisor to figure out what the cold case situation was in, in his district. And he started going through files and realized 
very quickly. Um, and when I say files, I don't mean like, let me type on the computer and see what's gonna pop up. I mean like boxes of dust covered binders um, from different posts throughout the years. And you realize I cannot do this by myself. Um, so he reached out to some people who had done cold case work and they said, you have to partner with academics. Um, academics have resources that you don't have. So this detective sends an email. Um, this was like, speaking of COVID, this was like April 2020, mm -hmm. right? So we're all just sitting around because we can't do anything. Mm -hmm. And the School of Criminal Justice gets this email from this detective at MSP. Karen and I, I'm pretty sure, like broke our computers responding as quickly as we could <laughs> that, yes, we're in. Like, we definitely want to help. You know, the, the emails was, do you want to help with cold cases? Uh, yes, please. For those of us who have wanted to be detectives, but we're like, yeah, we don't really want to do, but we want to do the work, but like not have to do the work. Um, so we signed up right away, got background checked and did all that. And they brought us this, this first case, right? It's 1600 pages. Ish. I want to say 17. I'm, you 17, add it every... I, I add every time we <laughs> talk about it because uh, it was awful. But it wasn't in order. It was scanned as it came out of the box. So we have this like four binders that's in no particular order. Like page 836 is page one. And you're like, who? What? And so you're trying to... They're like, just read it. And we're like, I can't read in chaos. Um, but we read it and then we started to meet once a week and talk about... Uh, we met on teams because we couldn't go and couldn't meet anywhere, um, talking about this case and starting to put kind of our theories together and our different ideas. And it was um, Karen and myself and a few grad students that kind of started. We were like this, this little cold case team, um, which is something that we had always wanted to do. And it was so cool to be a part of it that MSP allowed us to, to be part of this um, and, and get in these case files with them. And then we met, we met these guys down here. We took our students um, down to the place where, where Mary went missing from. We went, it was a bar. And we went down there. We had lunch. And we met the original detectives on the case. Um, our students, we kind of like bridged these, um, you know, the new students who are just coming out versus the, the guys who'd been in the field for a while and were able to bring everybody together to have this like different versions of, of basically one of the detectives at, at MSP said it, I think says it the best. He's like, we've been doing the same shit on this case for 40 years and we haven't solved it. So why not try something different? And so that was the really cool part about bringing in academics to, to learn about this case. And Mary's was the first one that we got. Um, but they you know, allow us to do research on these cases, to learn what do we not know? Why did these cases go cold? Um, and to bring energy and uh, new ideas and new ways of thinking about things with our students, with academics bringing our lens to it, um, which is something that hadn't really been done before um, with Michigan State Police. So now we have, we joke that if you, you know, you, they didn't have a cold case unit. We kind of made one. And when I say we made one, we just started putting signs on doors and <laughs> slapping up logos. And we're like, oh, we didn't know we had a cold case unit. We're like, yeah, MSP does. We didn't. <laughs> uh, but we do. And, uh, you know, for, so that was, Kirsten, when did you all start? Spring of 22? Yeah, spring of 22 was our first semester we brought in students. Every semester since then, we've been bringing in students to work with us um, and different backgrounds. So they all bring this like unique perspective to the table. And they're really, really good at doing stuff that like Karen and I are not great at. The detectives are like, 
you know, we'll need something done real quick. And Chris, how many like flyers and stuff did you make and timelines? <laughs> She's got this awesome thing. And I'm like, that would have taken me four days to figure out how to do. Um, so it's just been this really cool partnership um, between MSP and, and MSU. And it's, it's a really com competitive internship. We get dozens and dozens of applications. We interview every person to come in to make sure they're a good fit for the unit. Um, and it's really cool. It's, you know, Fridays are, are great when we're all there together. It's just this great day to bringing guest speakers to talk about cases. And these students, they know these cases forwards and backwards because they've been through them line by line, page by page. And I'm like, I thought I read. They're like, oh, yeah, that's right here. And it's just this like whole story. They know the details of this. And it's just such a huge asset to law enforcement to have um, those other resources because when we look at cold cases, our clearance rates for homicide have been decreasing over the decades. Um, we used to solve, you know, in the 80s, 80% 80 of our cases. We're in the 60s, 60% um, of our cases we solve. Um, some argue even maybe a little bit lower. So we need help. These cases can't sit on boxes, on shelves. They can't get dusty, and we lose parts of them. These cases are important. These victims deserve justice. They deserve the investigation that, that they should have gotten, or maybe because they were busy, because of a whole bunch of reasons. Um, you know, we weren't able to solve these cases, and we're really excited to be part of, of, of that process and doing that now. Karen, do you want to talk about Mary's case? Yeah. I feel like if I sit on the stool, somehow I'm going to fall off. So, um, but I'm going to I'm going to try. You it. try it. Give it a yeah, give it a go. I'm going to give it a go. Um, We're only recording audio, so it's fine. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. So, or you might not. I might not be able to get back up. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I'm really excited. So it's interesting because I hate Henry Lee Lucas probably more than any other criminal in the entire world. And so when the tie-in to our case was Henry Lee Lucas, I was like, it, it fucking figures, mm -hmm. right? Um, but so, yeah, they, for the case that we first started with um, was this the, a case that uh, was a Celine missing person case in 1981. Her name was Mary Alice Ellicott. Um, and the it's interesting because, again, as Ali was saying, it, the case was in, I mean, it was just, it was a mess, right? Um, and on our end, at least. But in Celine, we had no idea that in Celine, they had murder walls, right? These two guys, it was not a mess, right? They had, um, it was, and it was a while, it was a year right before we actually got to talk and realized, like, oh, we can compare what we have. That multidisciplinary approach, right, of, like, law enforcement, students. Um, and now, like, I'm excited because true crime, like, the true crime, the community, right, like, bringing in all of these people. Um, so I was just listening the other day to the, I forget what I was watching, but they were talking about the, you know, the, the arc of moral justice, like, bends toward good, right? Mm -hmm. um, but they were saying it doesn't do it on its own. Like, you have to push it, and sometimes you have to, like, force it, um, and it takes people to do that. And I feel like the more people we get involved in this, like, I, I think, you know, like it's inspiring to me, like, when I start to feel really depressed, like, that I'm sure you do with all the, like, awful stuff that you're looking at, um, to see, like, just how many people are, have been working tirelessly to get justice for these victims. So with Mary, um, so this was 1981, and she was, you know, we, there was like literally no victimology to this case. We went to open this case file um, and there, there was just nothing about who she was. There was a lot about, you know, her as a homicide victim. There was a lot about who she slept with, which just FYI, I've never opened a case file of a man and seen anything about his sexual partners in there, yeah. unless, um, 
that's a whole other podcast. Um, but, <laughs> but so there, you know, what was in there? She slept with a lot of people. So this complicates everything, right? She's a high risk victim. She, she was drunk. She was right. It was kind of all of the things that make someone a high risk victim, which is important to know because it tells us something about, right. Um, about the victim. And, but you need that good victimology. You need to know who your victim was because that tells you who the offender was. And it just wasn't there for Mary. So what we managed to kind of piece together um, in the reinvestigation was that Mary was a young, she was 29 at the time of her death. Her birthday actually is this week. It's May, or I'm sorry, uh, April 8th. Um, she was a survivor. She was someone who came from, her, she had a lot of family problems, a lot, um, some abuse. She had abusive relationships with men. She moved to Celine to kind of get away. She, um, she was recently divorced, and she was kind of coming to start a, a new life. And, um, you know, while she was in Celine, she... There was a, a bar called the Polar Bear Bar that was kind of central to this case. She started dating the owner. They were in a very volatile and, and violent relationship. Um, and so, and then she had a, a new boyfriend she was starting to see. She broke it off with the, this other boyfriend. Um, and so it just, you know, there was a lot going on in her, in her love life, right? Um, and she was last seen, she kind of, she, uh, you know, Kind of quit. She had been working at the bar. She quit the bar. She planned to kind of go to Florida with this new guy. Um, and then she was last seen on the night of October 11th at the bar. She was highly intoxicated. Um, and the last time anyone saw her, it was her ex-boyfriend, the, um, the violent one, um, in the parking lot of the bar. That's the last time anyone reports seeing her alive. And she, um, so she goes missing. And then kind of new, and I say boyfriend, or the new love interest, reported her missing a couple days later. Um, and it was about 14 days from when she went missing to when they found the body, and or 13 days. Um, and she was found outside um, in Celine or Celine Township, Celine Township. And she, the the wounds to I mean it was brutal. It was a brutal, brutal killing. You know, just when you think about overkill, that's pretty. That was what occurred. Not just you know stabbing, but also crushing injuries. Um, I mean, it was just horrifying what happened to this young woman. And what was clear is she, you know, she was a survivor in life. And then when it came to to her death, she was a like she fought. She fought back. But there were a lot of things. You know, the cool. I think one of the cool things about like it's a double edged sword, right? Because it's like. From our perspective, we can look at these cold cases now and we can see like longitudinally, like we can look backwards, right? And we can kind of see like what happened and we can see across time. And so we can see maybe not, you know, not criticizing anyone for what they've done, but we can understand what happened in terms of the investigation. And we can see like what questions weren't asked or what wasn't done. Um, and so I think over the past few years, that's really, we really now understand what happened in terms of what what wasn't done, why things weren't done, and how like we it was like a spinning top. If anyone watches Homicide Hunter, Joe Kenda, yeah. okay, just like I love Joe Kenda, but he talks about homicide investigations as being like a spinning top, and if you touch it too soon, right, it just like goes off the table and you never get it back again. Um, and it's you know we have a cold case library now that in the with MSP we've been kind of collecting cases trying to get them up to speed, trying to make sure that these victims aren't forgotten. And what's so clear is that, again, like there were so many cases where victimologies weren't done, these tops go spinning off and you don't get them back. And so through all of our work together, I think that's been the goal is really, you know, to try to figure out. Mary's case, um, it, was, it was difficult because there was a lot that wasn't done. And so um, 
in the past couple of years, we've managed to do re-interviews. We've eliminated a couple suspects, which has been great. We have some new investigative leads, which has been awesome. Um, but we've been working on this case for you know three years, and it's um, I think we were all surprised at how just how much time it takes, right? Um, again, if and especially in these older cases as well. Um, but you know, we just keep moving forward. And right, like, I, I was surprised at how it's not like CSI, right? Like, it's not like, I'm like, where's the crime lab? It's supposed to be around the corner. And like, <laughs> two, you know, like a year later, you're finally getting like, and they're not thrilled, like to test a 41, 42 year old piece of evidence for the eighth time, which is like, how, like, why aren't they wanting to do this for me? Right? So, um, but Mary, you know, so one of the, you can tell they were desperate because at what in the case file, we came across um, Henry Lucas and Otis Tool, right, had been, they, that was one of the cases where they were like, well, maybe, hey, maybe it's these guys, right, because like they were just at that point, just really kind of grasping at straws and thinking, um, and I remember in the documentary, which made me so angry, but there was, it was almost like a way, like, like all these law enforcement from all over the world, like, or all over the world, not over, all over Japan, right, for sure. But yeah, yeah, that's sure. true. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they're coming in like waiting and like, you know, with their all their cold cases, like, okay, is this, you know, they just wanted to close them. Yeah. And so I think, you know, that was in this case, it was like, okay, well, maybe it's these guys. And it was, um, I remember getting so pissed off when I saw that in the file, because again, I hate Henry Lee Lucas. Mm -hmm. And here's this, but here's this tie. Um, and because of that tie, like we're here today to be able to talk about Mary. Um, I want to let Kirsten kind of talk about what the experience has been like as a student getting to work uh, with MSP and work on cold cases. So I'm actually really lucky to even be a part of this cold case unit because when I interviewed, I actually got rejected. But thankfully for my professors, they fought for me to be on the team. And throughout my four years of college, this experience was the most amazing experience I've ever had. It's one thing to be reading textbooks um, about policing and theories, but it's a totally different experience to actually see it in person. And it's so important to me to have meaningful work behind what I do and to be exposed to what career professionals, criminal justice career professionals um, Sorry, I'm a little nervous. Don't be nervous. <laughs> we all are, um, girl. <laughs> um, it's just so important to have that experience at a young age and to make sure you want to be on that kind of career path. And a memorable experience from that is a victim of one of the serial killers we were working on um, came in. They, he was, he lived. <laughs> um, and he just talked to us about how important it is for us to be doing this kind of work because they live with it for the rest of their lives and to be going into these cold cases and get justice for them and just show that these victims were real human beings with families and to be able to experience that in real life and try to help them really means a lot and yeah it was amazing I got to as a 21 year old college student I was able to look at police files um, we went to the scene of the crime, and I think it's just so important to bridge the gap between generations and learn from each other, and yeah, thank you. I love that, <laughs> I love that so much. Thank you guys so much for coming up. Um, kind of one of the bigger things that's been really amazing that's been happening more over the past couple years 
is developing like these kinds of relationships because the things that people can do when they talk to each other, I'm convinced that that's a reason there are so many cold cases or why serial killers were able to be so successful for so long. Nobody talked to each other. So being able to form these kinds of relationships are really wonderful. And I appreciate Mm -hmm. you guys so much coming up. Hey friends, I wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a podcast that you might want to check out. Foul Play Crime Series was started by host Shane Waters in 2014, making it one of the OG true crime podcasts. It's a one case per season guided series that focuses primarily on cold cases. Shane drives all over the country in his mystery machine Tesla to get firsthand accounts from witnesses, detectives, family members, and sometimes even surviving victims. Over the past 14 seasons, Shane has solved a serial killer case from the 80s, given names back to three Jane Doe murder victims, and the case featured in season two inspired the popular Netflix docuseries The Keepers. So go give Foul Play Crime Series a listen. It is available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so speaking of relationships... When we started the podcast, I wouldn't say there really was, like, a true crime community in the Lansing, Michigan area. You know, we all watched the ID channel, and we all listened to our podcasts, but we didn't have our own thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of what we set out to build, and Mm -hmm. I feel like... You... No. No. I feel like we've done that. Um, And one of our good friends... Um, that we've talked to on the podcast, about on the podcast, is Rod Sadler. You guys familiar? You know the guy, right? He's our our mid-Michigan homegrown true crime author, and he's going to come up and talk to you about what he's been up to. Hi, Rod. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming up. Thanks for joining us today. So we talked to Rod in like season one. Uh, and your third well, book yeah, was I just was getting there. ready to come out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You had your two books at that time. We had To Hell I Must Go, which is my favorite. Mm-hmm. You know, we oh, know. really? We know. A crazy lady chopping her mother-in-law's head off and putting it on a platter at the dinner table. Like, that's chef's kiss that's of true. 1800s true uh, crime. So I, like, always, I always like to tell people that I don't judge. It isn't anything that I haven't thought about <laughs> once or twice. So. Um, and then... Uh, a Slayer Waits about the double murder in Stockbridge in the 50s, right? Yes, 1955. Um, and yeah. you were working on project number three at the time, and I, I think that most of you in here have come into my store and bought that book since then, oh, Killing I hope Women. So. Yeah, I hope so. um, about Donald Jean Miller, East Lansing serial killer. Yes. And then we've got, we've got a, a new one on the way, right? We do, we do. It's a cold case. You guys picking up on the theme today? So, <laughs> yeah, it's a theme. So, uh, would you like to know about it? Yeah. You guys want to know about okay. it? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I just, I kind of kept it, uh, held it pretty close because uh, I, I had an agent. I, I'm not going to go into the, the ins and outs of publishing, but I had an agent. They weren't able to find me a publisher, so uh, I terminated my contract with, with uh, my agent. And I now have a publisher, and I have a, a launch date of mid-September uh, for the book. It is not titled yet. Um, 
but it is a cold case from 1960, uh, from four months, I'm going to give it away here, Okay. Uh, four months before I was born, so do the math. <laughs> um, uh, and it occurred on Mackinac Island. Uh, it is one of uh, only two murders between 1900 and 2023 on Mackinac Island. Both of them are unsolved. Uh, and I don't know any of the details about the um, murder in the early 1900s, other than it was a woman whose body was found behind the Grand Hotel. I don't recall if she was an employee or what, but uh, the information that I got is that that case was also unsolved. Okay. But jump ahead to 1960, uh, there was a woman um, on Mackinac Island with her family, uh, with her uh, daughter and son-in-law. And her son-in-law's uh, mother had rented a cabin up at uh, British Landing. And they were all supposed to stay at British Landing uh, at, in the cabin. And this woman, her, her name was Frances Lacey. There's a, a ton of information out there on the murder. Um, but she chose to stay in town at the Murray Hotel. Um, if anybody's ever been to Mackinac Island, uh, the Murray Hotel has been in business forever. Uh, as a matter of fact, the weird part about this whole thing is that serial killer Don Miller, who I wrote my last book about, Killing Women, uh, actually worked at the Murray Hotel uh, six months before he began his killing spree. Wow. Uh, so there's a little coincidence there. But uh, So in 1960, uh, Frances Lacey went there with her daughter and with her son-in-law. She decided that she would stay at a hotel instead of staying in the cabin. She wanted a little privacy. Uh, so she stayed at the Murray Hotel. And she told her daughter, hey, I'll just walk to the uh, British Landing um, tomorrow morning. And uh, so the next morning, uh, she didn't show up. And so her daughter became worried. They reported her missing to the uh, state police who had a detachment on Mackinac Island during the summer months. Uh, and they began to search for her. And it was four days later when they found her uh, about halfway to British Landing along the, the west side of the island. Uh, they found her concealed under some brush. Uh, she had been strangled with her own panties. She'd been raped, and uh, her watch was missing. And so I FOIA'd the, the police report. Um, Freedom of Information Act is what I used, and they sent it to me. They called me up first, and they, which was a little unusual, uh, I thought. Usually they just send you a letter saying, hey, send us some money, and we'll send you the info. They called me up and they said, um, yeah, we've got everything you need here. We'd like to have maybe half the money first before we send it to you or before we copy it. And uh, I said, oh, sure, I understand. What is it, two, $300? Uh, $2,700 it cost me for that 2,000-page police report. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. It's insane. Uh, yeah, I almost didn't get it. I almost said, nah, it's not worth it. But I got it anyway, and uh, I, there's a, a weird story. I've developed a person of interest in the case. Um, not many people know this. Um, but I, and I won't give away his name because uh, I, I want you to buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
he was, a, he was, I'll jump back a couple years. In the early 2000s, uh, I did a, a two TV shows up in Canada. It, they were called Accident Investigator, and uh, they featured a couple of my traffic crashes because I, I'm retired from law enforcement. And I used to do all, all of our fatal traffic crashes. And so they flew me up to Montreal, and we were filming these shows, and I'm sitting in the hotel one night, and I see a friend of mine on TV. He's doing a true crime show. He's a local defense attorney here in Lansing. And, uh, but everything is in French because <laughs> it's in Montreal. And so I got back, and I called him up, and I teased him. I said, hey, I didn't know you could speak French. And, and he was talking about this case that he'd done and, uh, again, uh, defended this guy in 2001. And uh, he told me the guy's name, and, and I never thought another thing about it. And jump ahead a couple years, I'm doing some traffic crash consulting, and a private investigator friend of mine calls me up. And we're talking about cases that we're both working on, and he says, uh, yeah, this woman called, and she wants me to uh, look over this police file. Their brother's in prison. And, and it was the same guy that my friend had defended. And she wants me to look and see if there's anything the police did that maybe he could get out. And I said, oh, don't take that case. That guy's a serial killer. And so he didn't. And so I'm toying around with the idea of writing the Mackinac Island book, and I get a call from my defense attorney friend, and he says, hey, you ought to write a book about so-and-so. It's the guy that he had defended back in, in 2001. And I got to thinking, I'm like, why does this guy's name keep coming up in my life? So I said, yeah, maybe I'll write a book about him. So I started doing some research, figuring that, the case that my friend defended him on was a case, it was a cold case uh, from 1973. He was actually convicted in 2000, 2001. But uh, as I got to digging into it, I realized that his first arrest was exactly one year after the murder on Mackinac Island. And he had some physical characteristics that were similar to the, to the evidence that was found on the island. And there's a, a bunch of other things uh, and so I have uh, formatted the book to suggest that he's a person of interest because I think there's just too many things uh, that, he, that he should be looked at. Yeah. I really do. And uh, all of the information that I developed, I handed over to MSP, um, not the, the cold case unit, uh, because they don't have one of those up in northern Michigan. But I did speak with the detective at the St. Ignace Post, and all of my information was turned over to him. Where it went from there, I may never know. Yeah. I may never know. So. That's awesome. So, so that's the story behind my upcoming yay. book. We're very excited for it, right? Yeah. I know a place that you can do a book signing, just FYI. Uh, I've heard that. I do. Cops and Donuts? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's the yeah. one. Um, so kind of an interesting story. When Danny and I did the show together, we, mm -hmm. bless her and her husband Dave, we would just take over their living room <laughs> for these marathon recording <laughs> sessions. We would do a month's worth at a time. Mm -hmm. um, oh, my God, they were the longest days ever, ever. They were fun, but they were long. It was long because my dog would oh. walk by with her nails, and we'd have to stop. <laughs> And then re-record, or the wind chimes would oh, go the in the chimes. background, and we'd be like, oh, we got to redo that whole yeah. thing. But they were fun days. They were. So we had a recording session very early on in which we interviewed Rod, 
And we also recorded our episode about Mackinac Island that day in which Danny talked about Francis Lacey. Mm -hmm. And Rod just very briefly alluded to his new book that he was working on because he was done with the Don Miller book and that was getting ready to come out. It was in the editing and all of that process. Um, And so after that, I reached out to him privately. I was like, can you tell me what your new book's about? And he's like, well, it's about this murder on Mackinac Island. I was like, oh my God, we literally just talked about that. We hung up with you. And then talked about that case on the podcast. We've also talked about his chief suspect, who will remain nameless, but we've also done an episode on that. So when we say, like, the true crime world here in Michigan is so small, it it really is. is. Mm -hmm. And one of the things in The Confession Killer, the Henry Lee Lucas special, um, and I've, I've said this before and I've heard it said before, the only thing scarier than the thought of there being a serial killer is there being two or three, or four, or five. So it's just really strange to see how all of these stories are connected, and it makes it scarier in a way, but it also, like, okay, well, it was just this one guy and not seven. to add on to your fear... (laughs) Let's, let's, please, can we? What could be more frightening than the inevitable release? Yeah, yeah, we got, how many years Mm -hmm. we got left? Um, Eight. Eight years till Don Miller's out of prison, guys. Yeah, um, eight years. That's if he doesn't get parole this next time in a couple years. Right. And right. yeah, his maximum out date is 2031. So people will come into the store and we'll talk about this. And, that. and probably the Don Miller case is the one people bring up the most. I've met his sister's roommate. I've met people that went to school with him. He went to MSU's School of Criminal Justice as well. And, and um, I got some letters from him. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, is he healthy? Yeah. Like, maybe he'll Could die. Care less. No, like, we're, like, hoping <laughs> maybe not. Maybe he'll die before parole, yeah, you know? Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> and so people will ask me, like, are you, are you worried about him getting out of prison? And I'm like, nope. I'll only worry if something happens to Rod. Yep. Rod's first on that list. <laughs> if Rod goes missing, then I'm moving. I'm not worried, but I can tell you the wife has installed security cameras all I around the house. I believe it. And she's less than enthused that we get letters from a serial killer. So. And what's the number one lesson that you always like to tell people about writing to a serial killer? Yeah, if you're going to write a letter to a serial killer, and I'll, I'll, anybody can raise their hand. You three, you've heard this. So, uh, <laughs> But does anybody here know how you start a letter to a serial killer? I didn't think so. I'll tell you how. With someone else's return address. Yes. Because did you do that? No, no. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and, and I was able to make friends with, with Don Miller's dad, uh, which was uh, actually, we became, I, I think, pretty good friends. Um, and then uh, he always said, he lived in Indian River, and he always said, hey, if you're, if you're going north, stop in and see me, and we'll have lunch. Uh, and he was like a Brazilian years old. Yeah. And so I stopped in on my way to Mackinac Island. I was doing some research up there, and... Uh, so we went to lunch, and I could tell he was a little, a little off, and he ended up passing away a couple months later. And so the last letter I got from, from Don Miller, uh, he said, hey, I just wanted to let you know my, my dad passed away. And then he went into this diatribe about how disappointed his dad was in me because I was doing book talks, and, and, and they had done a couple documentaries about the show, or about the book, uh, and I'll give you the names of those in a minute. And uh, I almost wrote back to him, and I chose not to, 
and uh, I was going to put, yeah, I'm sure your dad was disappointed, but I'm sure he wasn't nearly as disappointed as he was when he found out that right. his son had murdered four women. <laughs> right. He's used to disappointment at right. this point. So, so. Uh, But the, the documentaries that they did about killing women are uh, I Survived a Serial Killer, mm-hmm. and um, which is on A&E. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is Making a Serial Killer. And I think mm-hmm. that's on the True Crime Network. Yeah. I was like, don't look at me. I only knew the first one, yeah. and you already said it. <laughs> and then, and, and actually, uh, Making a Serial Killer, you can pull right up on YouTube and watch that. It's season one, episode one. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. We look forward much. to the new yeah. book. Yeah. Dylan, how are we doing on time over there? We're good? Wrap it? Okay. We're going to wrap it. So we did get some Q&A questions, and I do have... Um, Speaking of relationships in the law enforcement community, we invited the lone detective from the Lansing Police Department's cold case unit to join us today. She was unable to. She's amazing. Her name's Shannon Thalen. She was unable to join us, but she put together a Q&A. We don't really have time to get through it today, so I'm going to record it. We've been recording this, and this is going to be the next episode, and then we'll record her answers and her Q&A and add that to the episode when the episode comes out. Boop. Jen here popping in with that Q&A from Lansing Police Department cold case detective Shannon Thalen as promised. Now, Detective Thalen has been with the Lansing Police Department for 20 years. She worked road patrol for nine years, and she's been a detective for the last 11 years. She was assigned to the cold case homicide unit in late 2019. When asked what types of cases are considered Lansing's cold cases, Shannon said, unsolved homicides, long-term missing persons, and any unidentified bodies. We currently don't have any unidentified bodies. The most recent was in June of 2020. We released a photograph of this person's necklace to the media, and with the public's help, tips related to the necklace came in that led us to be able to use previous medical and dental records for a positive identification within a month. That's pretty incredible, yeah? When asked who's in the cold case unit, the answer there was pretty simple. Shannon said, I am the only sworn officer slash investigator. I also have help from a retired FBI volunteer and a part-time civilian researcher who is working from a grant. They organize the old documents and scan them into digital format. They really do too much to mention it all, but it's all being done to work on getting the cases up to today's standards. While updating each case, they also complete a new summary, which is very helpful. There's also a retired attorney general prosecutor that volunteers to read over the summaries and offers his input. When asked how many cold cases Lansing has... Shannon said, 72 cases are currently assigned to me. However, 14 other cases do qualify as cold cases over a year old, but they still remain with the original detectives that were assigned to them initially. What is the oldest homicide in your caseload? Shannon said, Everett Marlette from 1963, which we've talked about here on the podcast. Most witnesses are dead or in their 90s. This case was recently reviewed by a retired FBI volunteer. Due to his summary of the case, I did recently have the MSP lab test some items for DNA, 
but the analysis was not successful. When asked, what's your process to try to solve cold cases, Shannon had this to say. It's slow going, but in a perfect world, first, the cases have to be organized to determine the true status of cases. The cases are reviewed and a fresh new summary is written. During the review process, it becomes apparent if there's any old evidence that could benefit from the application of new technology, such as DNA testing. Solvability factors are assigned to each case to determine a hierarchy of cases. Due to limited resources, not every case can be worked, so this helps determine which cases to focus on. When asked, what if someone calls in with a tip, Detective Thalen said, when new information comes in, I generally stop everything else that I'm doing and try to immediately work the lead as far as I can. When asked, have you solved any cold cases? Yes and no. I came into the unit in the fall of 2019, but wasn't assigned solely to cold cases for over a year. Since then, a majority of my time was spent investigating one case for two and a half years. It's solved and is currently being reviewed by the prosecutor's office. When asked, how can we help? The most important thing you can do is keep your ears open. Sometimes when I contact victims' families and friends, they have information that they've never come forward with before, either because they're reluctant or they think we already had that information. Please pass along the information, even if you think we already have it. As far as investigating, LPD can only use sworn officers to conduct investigations, but we're hiring. When asked, why do you think most cases become cold, Detective Thalen said, homicide detectives that work on current homicides don't have the luxury of working one case at a time like on TV shows. They also aren't solely assigned homicides. They are assigned all violent crimes. The majority of what I see is that when a new homicide or violent crime occurs, they were assigned to the same detective that had the murder that is now cold. Their other work didn't stop. The new homicides take priority, and their caseload continued to pile up, so the original homicide gets pushed further and further back. The detectives worked the leads and then started to research some dead ends. This, coupled with all of their other cases piling up and not enough resources, proved to be enough for some of these cases to get pushed to the side to become cold. Another reason is if witnesses just flat out refused to talk. The investigators weren't there. They didn't know what happened. We rely on witnesses to fill in the blanks, and when that doesn't happen, these cases will go cold. When asked why people find cold cases so interesting, I think we're all curious by nature. Mystery is intriguing, and most of us have a soft spot for the underdog. That's what these cases are, the underdogs. What makes an underdog successful? Determination. Listening to a story where determination prevails is always interesting. When asked, can you turn it off? No, not really, but I've gotten better at it than I used to be. My husband will tell you that he doesn't think I bring it home with me, but what he doesn't know is that some of my best investigative thoughts come to me while I'm alone in the morning at home before heading to work. For me, the victims stay with me. Each one is saying, pick me. It's hard to know that I really can only work on one at a time. When asked, what's something you didn't expect? 
Obviously, I knew behind every one of these victims' tragic deaths is a family who is continuing to want answers. However, I wasn't expecting to have a front row seat to the agonizing limbo of mourning and ups and downs that they go through waiting for answers. I'm responsible for providing these answers, and for some, they may never come. There are at least 15 families that keep in regular touch with me. I can hear and feel and share in the heartbreak when I tell them that I have no new answers. I didn't realize coming into this unit that I'm their last hope, at least until another detective takes my place, which they've grown accustomed to, and then they start the process all over again. A mom recently told me that she's only been surviving, not living, since her son's death a decade ago. I know that solving her son's case could help her to live again. There's a lot of responsibility that comes along with helping someone to live. Sometimes the most I can do is let the family know that their loved one's case has been recently reviewed and summarized, which shows them that they're not forgotten, but this seems like it's just not enough. When asked which case sticks out to you, they all do. Name off any of the 72 cases and I'll be able to tell you something about the case. It doesn't matter to me if some of my victims were into dope or other illegal activities. Nobody, regardless of poor choices, deserves to be murdered. They were all living, breathing people with families who loved them. I work for the families. When asked, what's your biggest hurdle? Getting more investigative staff dedicated to these investigations. A large multi-agency cold case task force would be ideal to tackle these lengthy investigations. However, agencies do not currently have the staffing to be able to assign a full-time detective to a specialized unit such as this. When asked, how are you different from cold case detectives before you? Detective Thalen said, I listen. Not that the detectives before me didn't, but I can assure you that I do. I'm also not afraid to ask for help from outside resources and connections. I have longevity, which means that I have five years left at LPD, and I am determined to make a difference in this unit within that time. I'm passionate to seek the truth and determined to succeed. Determination is probably a top trait that a cold case detective should possess. And lastly, when asked, what's something you want people to know? Detective Thalen said, that I'm trying my hardest. I take the utmost importance in clearing anyone's name who's been wrongfully accused and anyone who's gotten away with one of these senseless murders. Never stop looking over your shoulders. I'm coming for you. One of us will always be coming for you until the day that you die. Like I said earlier, Detective Thalen is incredible, and while I would have loved for her to be able to make it to the Violent Ends live show, I definitely appreciate her taking the time to answer these questions and provide a little insight into what goes on at the Lansing Cold Case Unit. And uh, she missed the last show, so that just means she'll have to come to the next one, right? Okay, speaking of shows, back to ours. Do you have anything else, ma'am? Thank you. Thank you. For Jen's amazing, first of all. I just feel so blessed that I was just a teeny tiny part of this whole thing. 45 and out of 99 episodes yeah, but is not a teeny tiny part. You have built this part. empire and you have taken it to this place of not just glorifying the true crime 
you know, because it's so popular now, yeah. but you're really making a purpose out of it and having, you know, the cold case picture showing at the bookshop. If you haven't been there, look at that. You know, just shedding light and making these connections. It's this really unsung hero thing that you've got going. And I'm so excited just to see how this keeps going. And I know it's just going to get bigger and bigger. So thank you, friend. I'm really excited. Cheers to Jen. Thank you. Thank you all again for coming today. Can we, can we just do one old school sign off? Oh yeah. Gosh. See, (laughs) that's what I need you for. Um, (laughs) so much more, but also that. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, I guess the only thing left to say is just, you know, keep shining. You magnificent. What the fuck? (laughs) Thank you so much.